it's time for Rolling Dice and Taking Names. In this episode, the guys review Iberian Gage and Coco Pelli. Plus, plus they have so many five-minute initiatives that I don't have time to say them all. And you're going to hear the words pucker butt more often than you'd like. I've already heard it more than I want to. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Rolling Dice and Taking Names, episode 238. This is Tony, No Time for Talk. That's why we're jumping into this quick. What's up, man? Hey, this is Marty, No Time for Talk. So here's the problem. I have another song on my head that it's not in. It's called No Time to Lose. I don't know who does No Time for Talk. Great, amazing yacht rider himself, Christopher Cross. Christopher Cross? Isn't he sailing? I know three songs from him. That's one, Ride Like the Wind, mm-hmm. and the author song. Okay. From the movie. I have never heard of this one. Well, this one's on his album with the big pink flamingo on it. Yeah, which is the big one from Sailing. Mm-hmm. And yep. so, yeah, he did No Time for Talk. The whole premise of the name, it's nothing deep, it's nothing hidden like 11 when we had Ignacion or uh, the coconuts with Merv Griffin. I didn't go that deep. I kept it simple because we got a lot to cover. We don't have a lot of time for this banter crud. No, I agree. Here's the thing. I'm counting. It's roughly eight games that we've played. That we're going to be talking about. And here's the thing in our past two episodes. Number one, thank you for all the amazing comments we got in the episode that we had with Scott Morris and Justin Jacobson about logistics. We were hoping that that would be useful and informative, and we got tons of positive feedback about how much people learned. So thank you so much for that. The one before that one featured Ignacy. So Tony, you and I haven't had a couple episodes to really jump in on games we've played. So we have all these games in our log that we've played that uh, we can't wait to talk about. I wanted to go back to what you were talking about, Scott and Justin. So if you listen to that episode, you will realize that you and I talked probably on total for that whole episode, maybe 15 minutes Mm -hmm. if we're, if we want to push it and be generous. So of that hour and a half show, we talked 15 minutes and we got tremendous amount of positive comments. Is there a correlation? You know how they say you shouldn't have a causation, co- correlation doesn't, no, causation doesn't equal correlation. I know, I think in this case that it does. Okay. I, I don't think it's any uh, surprise that people said, I really learned a lot from this episode when we talked the least. I completely agree. That is a fair statement. And then as far as the number of games we're playing, it's not so much that there's this backlog. It's just that our memories won't hold that long. (laughs) That's fair. In fact, I have a document, Tony, that after we play games, I start taking notes and stuff, knowing that we may not be talking about this uh, for a, a few days, a few weeks. So I have another document that I reference for all my notes about the games that we've played for that exact reason. Plus with the big shows coming out, such as Gen Con, Essen and stuff, more games are coming out and we're staring down the line at some pretty big releases that we're going to be getting our hands on soon. One of them I can't mention yet, but uh, you and I are planning a play date on oh, that suite, a play date uh, to get together to uh, check this thing out. And as soon as we can tell you what it is, obviously we'll, we'll be all over it, but it's a big release for 2021. So I had mixed emotions about that play date. Not so much with, well, okay. So the mixed emotions were, hey, we haven't done this in a very long time. So that's exciting. But then you comment back, well, it's going to take us four hours. So you see, there was some mixed emotions there. Four hours, 
me playing a game. You've got me structured now to where when we go and meet on Thursday nights, <laughs> it's like an hour of, of eating and BSing and then two and a half hours of playing games and then we're gone, we're done, we're out. But see, here, here's the thing uh-huh. is, I am so pumped for what could be an epic game experience because because of the pandemic and everything, we haven't had those opportunities to where we can just buckle down and just enjoy a big event, a big a day because we're meeting on a weekend in order to do this. So personally, I'm really looking forward to it because it's been well over a year since we've had like a weekend game day. Agree. It'll be exciting. I'm looking forward to it. But there's a problem with that game day. Okay. The problem is the general beverage that is always served at an RDTN game day is Coke Zero. Yes. But unfortunately in our area in the Southeast, Charlotte, North Carolina, finding the original Coke Zero is getting harder and harder. Now I have secured us two cases, so we should be good to go on game day, but it is being replaced by the one in the red can. Haven't had it yet. And I think we need to have a taste test. Yes, we do. Now I have taste the new Coke. I have not told you my thoughts mm-hmm. on it yet. The new Coke Zero. Is it still called Coke Zero? It, it is. It's Coca-Cola Zero Sugar. And then the old can, I got them both sitting here, Coca-Cola Zero Sugar. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're going to try it and, and we'll give our thoughts. I'm doing a blind test over here. It took me, actually, Tony, it took me a while to actually find regular Coke Zero now. So yeah. we found a case today. Vanessa has poured me two glasses and our rolling dice and taking names mason jar glasses, mm. which are still available over at podpledge.com if you want them. And uh, so I'm going to let you taste first. Okay. And then I'm going to have Vanessa join me for the taste test so that she can tell me whether I am right on which one is which. Because personally, I think I'm going to be able to tell. Okay. Now, I will say on the new Coca-Cola Zero Sugar Red Can, we've got some advertising going on here. It says, now more delicious. That's going to have to set those expectations pretty darn high. Right. I mean, so let me let me go ahead and get this bad boy. There it goes. There it is. The bubbles aren't tickling the nose any differently. They're not causing me. Well, you know what? I've got another can of Coca-Cola Zero, the regular. So let's do this right here. Ah, I like what you, I see what you're doing here. Yeah. Any difference in the smell? I wonder if these have been sitting in my garage too long that they're um, gone flat. No, no, mm-mm. no. For everybody, that was the smell test. Now I'll give it the um, true tasting the new Coke Zero in the red. Here we go. So I'm going to keep an eye on your face and see if you have any reaction to it whatsoever. Now you are a big fan of the regular Coke Zero. Been drinking it for a while. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. But I mean, can you taste a difference? I think my taste buds are dead. No, no. I'll take a drink of the regular, of the, of the old one now. Okay, clean, clear, cleansing the palate. Yeah, oh, you need I've got some water, don't you? Yeah, well, I got some Mountain Dew right here. That'll cleanse any palate. That might help <laughs> strip your palate clean, boy. Let's see. All right. That new Coke Zero is definitely sweeter tasting to me. Okay. So that's, that's where I'm at. It, do I hate it? No. I mean, I'm not going to hate it, but it, it's sweeter. I, I'm not going to go whining to anyone and say, oh, my Coke Zero back, the original flavor. If they had kept it in the same can, I got a feeling I would never have known. Interesting. But my top, my palate's not as delicate as yours, maybe. I, I don't know about that, but we're going to find out. So let me, let me call Vanessa in. Vanessa, you ready? All right, so Vanessa is entering in the room right now. Like I said, she has poured. Vanessa has entered. Tell her to hurry up and do the intro. All right, so I know... Uh, hey, y'all, it's time for 
a taste test. There you go. See, from far away. All right, so I'm going to try the one that you brought in with your left hand. She said, make sure don't don't make mess these up. So here we go. Uh, they both look the same, but we'll see. Both out of RDTN mason jar glasses. Okay, so I've had the one on the left. I think I know. Mmm, a little qu- inquisitive look there from the Marty. Hey, Taz, there's Marty's dog. All right, here we go. Okay. My guess is, Vanessa, the one on the left is the old Coke Zero, and the one on the right is the new. Oh, my gosh, you are incorrect. Oh, no. You are incorrect. Are you serious? Right is old, left is new. And you know what? After I poured them, I tasted them, and they it's hard to tell drinking them back to back. I honestly thought, okay. <laughs> She does better well, sound effects than I do. This did not go as planned. <laughs> My podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so, left is the new. Left is the new. All right. So, here's it. Tony, I like it better than I thought I did. I honestly tried it the first time and we didn't care for it. What did you think now trying the second time? I thought they tasted very similar. <laughs> For some reason, I thought the, the old had more of a strong fizz uh-huh. to it. Uh-huh. I'm telling you, I didn't notice anything different. Well, maybe it's because it's phasing them out and it was left on the shelf a long time. I see what Tony's saying, though. It does have a little bit more of a sweeter taste. Mm-hmm. More like a Pepsi. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. Hey. I appreciate it. Bye, y'all. Can, wait a minute. Can, can she oh, say- oh, oh, she said, can, he said, come here for a second. This is what Tony just made. Homemade croissants. I want to taste test some of those. There you go. So we want to taste test croissants. Okay. Well, tell her thanks to the Great British Bake Off. That's what. That's the reason. So anyway, but see, I told you the, the sweetness. I honestly thought this was going to be a slam dunk. No, I am. Uh, I am not as offended by it as I thought I would be. Yeah, I mean, it's just a tiny bit sweeter, and like I said, my original. May have been sitting in the garage so long that it may have gone a little flat, but I'm not, I'm not hearing anything. No, and the reason why I wanted to show you that that video and show Vanessa because she, you both, you you do the breads and she does a lot of baking. We do, we've enjoyed. I don't that. do any breads. I thought you made breads now. No, 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 no. I never make breads. The only thing I've ever done is we make homemade cinnamon rolls. Okay, that's the only dough I've ever made is for stuff like that. Thanks to you. Continuing, mm-hmm. thanks to you, we are up to season six of the Great British Bake Off now, and they did croissants. And I was looking at that, thinking there is nothing hard about that. Making flaky pastry, come on! How hard is it to roll dough on top of butter and make croissants? And I was quite surprised at just how well they came out. But I did have some issues. But this is also we got to play somebody that's been on the show's game. It finally made it to our play area and that would be kim joy's kim joy's bake-off yeah we sure did it's a it's a co-op card game kind of reminiscent of what you say is it kind of like the maybe kind of like the crew no i don't know what, what do you think it's reminiscent anyway it's a co-op card game mm-hmm. so this is a cooperative set collection game mm-hmm. That's how I would I, I would put it because uh it, thematically it's really kind of cool you're trying to get ingredients uh, on your turn you turn you turn those in to create layers 
of a particular order that you're trying to fill as there's customer order cards on the table that is saying, hey, we want this type of pastry or cake or whatever. So first you got to collect the ingredients. You got to make the things, uh, the layers that make up that cake. And then when you get them all made, you satisfy the requirements of the customer order that they're looking for. But it's timed because if you don't do it fast enough, the customer will leave your store and you'll be losing victory points. Right. And keep in mind when he says timed, he's not talking about having to play cards fast. It, it's simply yes. just at the end of playing certain rounds, at the end of a round, another customer comes in. And if you're not serving these people, just like today with poor wait staff or the, the challenges we have in the workforce, they may walk out on you. But what I found interesting about this game, Marty, when it comes to the set collection was that sometimes it was the straight. It was the, the butter, the sugar. Or there may be where you need to combine two to get some special ingredients. And I found that to be an interesting. And there's always this, we can also trade cards based as, yes. as an action. Because on each person's turn, we have a certain number of actions that we can do. We could take cards into our hands. We can trade cards with each other. And again, we are working back and forth, looking at what the customer needs. And so Tony, it's like, uh, Marty, if you got a butter... Uh, it'd be great if you could give me a butter. And then on my turn, I can turn these in to create this layer. And once I have these couple layers, I can turn this in and create a customer order. And like you said, at the end of every round, a new customer comes into the store. The store can only hold so many people, Tony. And once it gets full, it's first in, first out. That uh, customer that's been there the longest leaves the store, which is not as one opportunity we don't have for scoring points. There's also challenges. So it's not as easy as, because when we think about, oh, I'm just going to pick up cards and play cards. No, there may be challenges in your store that keep you from being able to collect. Like on the one that Marty and I were playing, certain ingredients were covered up. And as you progress through the game, it gets harder, which I think is kind of like what with the crew, when you when we would yeah. play the crew, there would be various challenges. They may be that you had to play certain tricks in certain orders, or you had to do um, certain communication was broken down, so you weren't allowed to communicate when you were playing the game. So there's these challenges, and that's what kind of keeps it fresh. Overall, I don't find the game to be anything innovative or new, but it is kind of neat. It's a, it's a different thing. Innovative. Uh, innovative. Thank you. I found it to be just enjoyable. You know? Yeah, no, hundred percent. And if you're a fan of the, the, the show, uh, you're going to know who uh, Kim Joy is. And it's probably easier to play and get into than what the crew is. Uh, so if you're looking for a simple, cooperative game that kind of has the feel of the crew but a little bit easier to grasp and get the family whole family to play and like tony said it is scenario based so you got a book full of scenarios and like you mentioned the one there's a cat out there and the cats you got to move the cat in order to get to the ingredients that they may be coming so you may have to spend the action to say cat get get off the butter you're getting fur all over the place man Ooh, oh Imagine that. Take a big old bite and get pull out the hair. Ooh, no. Be shutting down that bake-off. But what's fun is after a certain number of rounds, you're going to calculate your score. So what I like is that you can play the same scenario over and over and try to beat your previous score. So it's not like you lose or you win. It's just how well do you do and you can play that scenario again. Uh, have you ever played the game Overcooked? Uh, on the Switch or PC? No, but I'm getting it for free on my PlayStation now that I am a PlayStation Plus member. So I'm going to okay. be getting that free. So I'm excited. That'll be a good cooperative game for Donna and I to finally play. 
Yeah, and then you and I can play online too. So it's the exact same concept, except that's real time. Customers come up, there's an order you need to fill, you need to get the ingredients, fulfill the order. That's exactly what's going on in this game. So if you like Overcooked, except it's not time-based, it's more, uh, it's not real time, it's more turn-based, it's the exact same premise as the video game Overcooked. Wait a minute, we can play online together on the play? Sure we can. I have it on the Switch, and I think it's cross-platform. Well, really? We may have yep, to- I, have, I have it on Steam, and I have it on Switch. All right, so we may have to try that. And if you're a PlayStation Plus member, you can download it for free in well, the month at this show. Which I am, so I did not realize mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go I'll go grab it real quick. Well, uh, there. You, well, I don't know when those release. This is all a new concept to me. These free games that you, if you subscribe for... $60 for a year, you get free games. And unless you don't subscribe, then they're not free anymore. This is a whole news concept to me. So I'm interested in exploring this and see how long I keep it up. But I did jump on it when it was 50% off. I almost, almost messed up. I thought it was to the end of the month. And it ends today. Did you know that? Did you- no. Well, here, before we jump off and leave this, I think this is a really cool family game. It's Kim Joy's Magic Bakery from publisher Skybound Games by designer Ben Kepner. Plays 15 to 30 minutes, two to five players. So this is one of those things that <laughs> if you like the show, you'll like this. Even if you've never seen the show, a co-op set collection game is cool. Uh, it is, it does, you say it's not, it's not innovative in the sense of what you're doing of collecting sets and turning them in. But I do think adding in the co-op aspect of it and uh, the theme of trying to fulfill orders does work really well. Agree. I enjoyed it. Like you said, it was a palate cleansing game at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we did. And we played it a few times. It's like, I'll reset that. We can do better than that sort of deal. That's what makes it fun. And then if you get tired of doing a scenario, there's uh, 10 unique scenarios in there for you to play. Now, speaking of palate cleansing, mm-hmm. pucker butt hot sauce. There's no, there's no way for me to segue into this. There's just me. No. What is this? Well, you you jumped the order of the show notes because I was supposed to go from the overview of the Southern Fry Gaming Expo into Pucker Butt. Okay, then let's then, then we I, can jump it back. Okay, okay, all right. Well, I'm so glad that I enjoyed my baking. How was your vacation at Southern Fried <laughs> Gaming? <laughs> All right, so I got to go to Atlanta again for the Southern Fry Gaming Expo. This is my second time attending. Uh, if you've not heard us talk about this, this is a gaming expo that covers both video games and board games. They have a big hall where they have hundreds of video games and arcade games that are free to play. You go in on Friday, it runs through Sunday, you walk into this hall and just walk up to an arcade machine, a pinball machine, and just start playing. It is so much fun. In the There's other areas of the convention center where there's open board gaming. They got a really nice library so you can play board games. So I was brought there to help promote some board games. I was on some panels. It is becoming one of my more favorite conventions because of all the different things that you can do. Like I said, you want to play video games, it's there. There's a miniatures gaming because there was uh, some Age of Sigmar tournaments. There were some magic events. If you want to do Mario Kart tournaments, that they have old school arcade console machines set up. You can go play. There was the historical, okay, this was funny, the historical computer society, which uh, had a working Commodore 128 yes. in the historical computing society, which makes you feel really old. It's like, 
way back in the 80s. It was hard for us to even find one that even works. But look, here's a Commodore that people used to use. Wow. It was it was kind of sad. There was a TI-99, the Texas instrument that I had as my first computer, which was tape deck driven. Mm-hmm. That was in there too. But what was funny, what was not was in there was the, um, what was the Radio Shack super popular? TRS-80. Yeah. There were no trash 80s in there. Now that it just hit me, there were no trash 80s, which would have been the perfect historical machine to have in there. Well, I don't know if you, if they got a, barely could find a Commodore 128 because there is a, there, there's a huge following for Commodore 128, not only for the graphics, but also for the sound capabilities of the that machine. I mean, I know it's outdated now, but still, or they didn't have the one, I don't remember the name, but there was one that had this nub keyboard. It didn't have actual keys on it. You it had the, the, the print in stuff, the the imprint. God, I'm gonna have to go look that thing up. But there were the imprint nub keyboard. Yeah. I don't even know. So you know how like you've got um oh I don't know when you would depress a number and it wouldn't be a key, it would just be like a little press pad. You talking about a membrane? keypad if you want to get technical with me that's exactly what i'm talking about the uh, old ataris had that there you go there was another one that uh, god i can't even think who made that it was it was a unique little thing that, then your fingers would be nubbed by the time you get yeah. finished because you aren't really physically pressing a, a button it's just a membrane switch but anyway so they did not have any of those uh they had the one the original uh Mac, like Macintosh SEs, which I used to write my papers on in college. It was just really sad. It's like all these people come here. Wow. Look at how it used to be all these years ago. It's like, yeah, that was, that was modern for me at one time. Oh, we were, that's okay. We're old. Accept it. Move on. We are. So anyway, so why is it coming around to pucker butt hot sauce? Because they had some other events that were non-gaming that were fun. They had Atlanta wrestlers come in they set up a ring inside one of their conference or convention halls and we went there and watched a wrestling match it was fun it was it was silly fun but one of the things they did also was a hot pepper eating contest seven people on stage tony eating raw peppers once somebody took a drink of water or a drink of milk they were out okay so they started with really you know light bell peppers and they start working your way up and that was one of the most entertaining things I've seen because you could see the, it was not entertaining to see the pain on people's faces, but just the reaction of the crowd. It was, people were so getting into it, cheering these people on and seeing how far they could go without, you know, taking some milk. But one by one, they started dropping and eventually they got to some really, really hot peppers. They got to the scorpion pepper. Uh, which is a a really hot one. And then it got to the Carolina Reaper. Now, Tony, I don't know if you know this, but the Carolina Reaper is developed by someone that lives in Fort Mill, South Carolina, which is basically where I work. And they have a store called the Pucker Butt Hot Sauce. This is the same person that also provides hot sauces for like hot ones on YouTube. And the Carolina Reaper is considered the hottest pepper of all time. So they had... Actual Carolina Reapers, and they just ate. The, it was down to two people at this point. They all just ate the whole thing. Oh, took the whole bite. I don't know how they pulled this off. Neither one of them drank milk or water, so they said, "All right, let's." There's no hotter pepper at this point, except something called the Pepper X, which Ed, the guy who makes these, will not give to us because he has it. 
in hiding or he's holding on to it until somebody can beat the Carolina Reaper. And then he's going to say, well, guess what? Here's an even hotter pepper. So he's kind of holding that on his own. So they couldn't get an actual pepper X is what they're calling it. So instead they took some hot drops, hot sauce and put it on top of another Carolina Reaper. And they said, all right, here's the thing. If none of you are out after this, it's going to be a tie, but they had to not drink for 60 seconds after they took a bite of the pepper. They were just pouring sweat. They both went 60 seconds, so they shared the trophy at the end. They were both big winners, but it was so much fun. If you ever have the chance to go to the Southern Fried Gaming Expo, uh, you should go. It is it is a blast. It's already been announced next year. It's going to be the middle of July mm-hmm. uh, in Atlanta, which is going to be a little bit better time, so you need to go uh, check that out. So why did they bring up the Pucker Butt Hot Sauce? Because a couple of weeks ago, I went to their store in Fort Mill. They have a storefront. Mm-hmm. And I purchased one of the hot sauces that's made with Pepper X. Okay. With Pepper X, not Red Hot. Not, not, okay, not Carolina the Carolina Reaper. Reaper. It's the one, they they will make hot sauce of this, but it, they don't even know how hot it is. There's no rating yet on the number of Scovilles this is. It's still being tested. But I got some of made with Pepper X. And it, it yes, it is hot because Vanessa made some red beans and rice. I put four drops in which was more than enough to taste in a bowl of red beans and rice, but it is really good. It is hot, but it is really good flavor. Go check out, you look up Parker Butt Hot Sauce. You can order uh, the the sauce from them, get it from there. It's, It's locally made. I just think it's really cool that the hottest peppers in the world are made locally right here. So for those that are you are everybody's going out there. It was the Timex Sinclair computer, by the way. So I'm retroing there because everybody's now. Oh, oh, that was the one with the membrane switch. Yeah, the one I was trying. Oh, to the Atari also had a membrane switch. Yes, it did. And so the Scoville scale for the Carolina Reaper is 1.5 million. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Ghost Pepper is 855k. There you go. That's almost twice. Yep. So for me, burning your mouth is not fun. <laughs> I just, I don't enjoy that. I don't know what's wrong with me. I get that. No, I I totally understand that. And uh, I heard that those guys were paying for it later, if you know what I mean. Oh, I bet bet it was hurting going in and out. They they had a medic staff uh, there. Uh, They had to sign waivers. In fact, they said some of them when they left the stage were behind stage throwing up. I mean, they are eating raw peppers at this point. It was insane. I'm sorry. The prize package needs to eat uh, to be equal to the Scoville rating in dollars for me. If you want me to eat something like that hot, if you want me to eat one point five million dollars, uh, yeah, you want me to you know, Carolina Reaper, it better be one point five million dollars before I put that thing in my mouth. Oh my god! Anyway, so ama- amazing event. Uh, highly recommend going. All right, Tony. One last thing uh, before we before we get over to the games. So we're always talking about food and everything. Somebody in our Discord channel shared this. I'm a big Arby's fan. We have the meats. I enjoy a good roast beef and cheddar sandwich every so often. For some reason, Arby's said, you know what would be a good idea? Why don't we make D&D dice? The Arby's shop has a set of D&D dice with a little Arby's logo on it. And not only do they have this, it's sold out immediately. It's for $12, a set of D&D dice. I just thought it was so odd that Arby's said, you know what's a good marketing? Let's sell some dice. What's that it had to do with 
Roast beef. I have no idea. Genius. I mean, they're probably like, uh, we'll see how many sales sold out. What? Wait, let's, let's look. Wait, we need to look into this. I mean, the dice has a logo on one face and the little Arby's bell inside. I'm guessing that's all I can tell from the image. It's the Arby's hat. You know, the tall hat they have on their sign. I always thought that was a bell. No. You remember the old Arby's signs, which yeah. it was basically a hat. That's a hat, not a bell. I swear as God is my witness for 50 years <laughs> or, or well, how many, 45 years I could have sworn that was a bell, but you're pro- you're right. It's, it is probably. No, I know. I know I'm right because actually on the website it's okay. Hold on. Yeah. So here, I know what here, I know what it looks like. I'm looking at it right now. I just thought it was a bell ringing or something. I don't, I didn't give it a whole lot of look other than <laughs> there's Arby's behind a bell ringing the bell for dinner. I mean, what does a hat have to do with roast beef other than maybe a cowboy? Cowboy? That makes no sense. Oh, and a bell makes more sense? Okay. If that was the case, then why doesn't McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's and all these other places have cowboy hats? I know because Arby's already has it and they have their Burger King and all that, but still. And what kind of hat has a droopy side like that? (laughs) Wow. You really went off the rails with this. Arby's has dice. <laughs> did you did you sign up for, about the Arby's hat? So did you get on their email subscription in case they offer it back? No, I, I should. Here's the thing: when I first saw the link, it was available, and I just should have grabbed the oh, set. Man. I had no idea they were going to be. I didn't know they were going to be this hot. Well, I, I will say this though, Tony: if you if you do want some dice and you don't want to have to wait on the uh, Arby's D and D dice, well then. Check out the next spot here for Miniature Market. I'm always so impressed, Tony, by the, the stuff that Miniature Market provides as far as accessories. We've talked about game bags and card cases. Now they're carrying dice. And I'm not talking about a couple sets of dice. I'm talking about tons of different dice ranging from prices from 3 to eight dollars and tony you and i got some sample of these dice the the three dollar dice are a little bit smaller dice a little bit smaller yeah they're a lot smaller dice okay first off i hate to interrupt the commercial but make sure you can understand the conversion of millimeter to something you can see Yeah, I was surprised by how small the three dollar mm-hmm. dice, but they're cute. They're cute. They're cute. Yeah, they're cute, I, can you? Uh, here's a D twenty that's only two millimeters. What? Where? Where is that? I love playing those with my APBA, the little miniature dice that I had. But, yep. but man, yeah. Oh, sorry. And you were saying the other dice are your more uh, regular size standard dice, and they have some really super nice acrylic dice. They have solid dice, uh, opaque dice tons of different colors they got pages of dice they have metallic dice now we did get some of those tony and i will say these are metallic plated they aren't metal dice so just to let you know for eight dollars you get metal dice that are just plated with a metallic enamel on it but they're not made of metal so just to let you know that if if you're into that sort of look they still look good but anyway they're not fully made of metal once again reading is fundamental so make sure you know that because when we got them, I was like, oh man, $8, how are they doing this for metal dice? Because they're not fully metal. But anyway, they have the other regular dice. Normally when you go buy Chessex dice, for these same type of dice, you're probably going to pay 9 or $10. Most of these are 6 
They look just as nice as the Chessex. They're hefty, they feel good in your hand. Entire selection of miniature market dice that you need to go check out. And Tony, I did not know this. Did you know that miniature market price matches? I did not know that until I read their little thing on their page. So get this. They do price matches. Find a lower price from an online retailer, online mind you, on an identical in-stock price, tell us, and we will match it. It's got to be, the item must be identical, size, model, color, brand, etc. And the item that you're asking for must be in stock. Literally, you just go to, you just provide proof. You know, like, here's a link of this like product for a cheaper price, and they'll match the price. How stinking cool is that? Pretty darn stinking cool. A lot easier than trying to get the person to match it at my local hardware store. Because I got to take a picture. They got to challenge it. They got to look it up. Here, click, link, you're good. And it, it actually works. We've had reports on our Discord channel of people actually getting this to work. So that is outstanding. Price matching, they carry dice. I just don't, It's hard to find a lot better deals online than over at miniaturemarket.com. Capstone Games has a series of games called Iron Rail. We've covered all of them, Tony. Irish Gage, Ride the Rails, and now the third Iberian Gage designed by Amabel Holland. Uh, the artist, is again, is Ian O'Toole, who's done the other three games. And for me, Tony, of the three, I'm going to do like you. I'm going to jump right to the end. I think this may be my favorite of the three Iron Rail series games that we've played. And I went back and listened to our older reviews in our previous episodes. And y'all can go check those out. And here's what we thought about them. I think this might be my favorite of the three. All aboard on the train to Funtown. That's right. Here we go, baby. A train game with a lot of fun in it. And we are on a non... Well, we're going to have to eventually stop a one-stop. And that is on enjoyment. Yes, I... <laughs> wow. <laughs> what? I love okay. this game. This was a no, that great was, game. That, that was good. That was good. So the first game, Irish Gage, is an economic game. The second game, Ride the Rails, was a pick up and deliver. This is back to a more economic game, but it's more deterministic. Do you remember in Iron Gage, Tony, where that was a game? It had to do with buying stocks and there was some bidding and stuff. And there's a concept of cubes that were pulled out of the bag that were going to determine uh, what stocks are going to pay dividends that round. There's no really random element to this at all. It's uh, it's pretty much, you know exactly what's going to happen every round, which I kind of like more in my economic games. I like removing that random element from Irish Gage and make it more of a straight economic game. I'm with you. This is the level of train game that I think I've been missing. I love Railways of the World. Yeah. The, the pickup and deliver, the stocks, uh, City of the Big Shoulders. I know that wasn't a train game, but anyway, the stock game from that standpoint. This is, I think, a very solid game to not, if for someone as you think, oh, Railways of the World is too much, this is it. Here's the sweet spot. It's got the stocks, it's got building the track, and you don't have the, I hate to say it, and I'm going to get yelled at, the fiddliness of pickup and deliver. Mm, okay. Yeah. I tend to like economic games more than pick up and deliver. That's why I probably like this. Nothing wrong with ride the rails. I think when we, we reviewed the game, we all liked ride the rails. It was, it's a good, solid pick up and deliver. I just like dealing with stocks. Mm -hmm. 
And this game, it's it's three to five players, plays 60 to 90 minutes. Again, like the other two games, the rules are on one sheet, front and back. And it's very easy to learn. You're going to start out with a stock phase. And the game is set up with five different stocks. The random replace goes are going to be resolved uh, in different ways. And not all stocks are the same, Tony. Some have more shares than others. Some have five shares. Some have four shares. And the dividends they pay are also different in scale. But when the game first starts, you have basically the stock phase where the first player will cl- take a cube off their board and claim one of the, the stocks from that railroad. Each of the little stocks are represented by a little uh, cardboard piece with um, slots in them or holes in them to put your cube. And by placing a cube there, you're claiming a share. But being the first person to go there, Tony, you get to set the share price. And it must be within a certain range. And when you do that, you start out with 40 bucks. You take that $40 and you pay it to the company. That first round is a lot of claiming those initial shares and setting the price of the shares, which is, <laughs> in hindsight, is where I really screwed up, Tony. You guys, when you first claimed a stock that it hadn't been placed yet, y'all set the shares at a reasonable price. I said, you know what? I'm going to jack up the price on the one I did. And I kind of uh, pay too much for it in the long run, looking back on it. So the question is, why would you not put it all at the lowest possible share for that stock? Maybe you want to deter people and be the railroad baron for that particular one. Because maybe that one provides the most dividends and you're going to dissuade others from being part of it. If I set it too low, everybody may jump in it. Now, you cannot buy the same stock during that round. If I buy the purple stock, I can't go back and buy it again. The future rounds, I can. Uh, I'm sorry, I can buy again off that, but the same restriction applies. So you have to balance your money. So maybe I want to keep you guys from going there. That's one of those things you have to decide at the beginning. Once you place that initial share and it's the first one, then you get to decide where that train is going to head out of, what major city is going to begin it. That's also key because one of the hard things to understand in this game, and two things you got to keep straight, but one of the hard things is if a railroad does not make it to its next city when building, then its stock market is going to drop. And we'll talk about building here in a minute. The other thing you got to keep in mind is that there are three piles of money. Your money, the railroad's money, and the bank's money. And where it goes, it's very important to keep track of that. We're all going, we're buying stocks, we're trying to figure out how we're going to build out this railroad. We're taking our shares, then we all consecutively pass, and now it's the building phase. Well, hold on, before you go there, I will say that once every initial stock has been bought, let's say you build the purple. Mm -hmm. So you build the purple, you set a price, you pay it to... Purple Company, they have their own allotment of money, a place to store uh, money. You're going to pick up one of the trains, purple trains, and put it in one of the cities. I come behind you. I can also buy a purple mm-hmm. share. I take one of my cubes off my board, and I put it in the little purple stock tray. But here's the difference. The price has already been set, so all I'm doing is taking the money from my account and paying it to the company. The train has already been started, so I don't place a train at that point. So when you buy additional stock in the future, and this is going to happen most over the course of the game once all the stocks are set, all you're doing is paying money to a railroad company and basically you've claimed a stock, but you don't place anything at that point. Right. You're investing into that railroad. 
Yes. Yep. That's already been established. Once you've invested in that railroad, all the shares are taken. Everybody is passed. Now, as a shareholder, I get to now decide how to put the tracks on the board or put the little engines. There's no turns, tracks, none of these track discs. It's just basically sticking a little engine down. So we look at the share and going in top down order, you look at the first share. Let's say purple was the first share. Then the first person who owns a share gets to put the first and only one train out. It's not like you keep spending money to put trains out. You get to spend the company's money to add a train to the board. Depending on the hex you're going in will determine the cost of how much that is. Once you do that, the next share owner may then add a train and use the company's money to build it. Hopefully you two connect to another city. If you do, then yay, the stock does not decrease. We are done with that and we are done building that train, but you don't go to the next one. What do you know, do next, Marty? You don't go to the, you mean you don't go to the next stock. You don't go to the next company. So, yeah, so everybody who is invested in a company places a train, like you said, and here's the, we're going to make a very important distinction. When we buy stock, we're paying from our supply to the company. When the company builds, they're paying from their supply to the bank. They're taking money from their supply, paying it to the bank to be able to put out track. If they connect to another urban area, good. Guess what? That actually increases your dividends. Mm -hmm. That increases the worth of your dividends. If you connect it to another major city, it increases the stock share and the dividends. Like you said, if you don't connect at all, the stock price goes down one spot on the stock track. But then we're going to pay dividends. So now how does this work? Now we go to the bank. We take money from the bank. Uh, there is a dividend tracker on the board. And you see where the what the value is of that company's dividend at that point. Let's say it's $2. Everybody who owns a share of that stock gets 2 bucks from the bank. If you own a share, you get $2. If I own a share, I get $2. If the company still owns two shares, meaning they haven't been claimed yet, the bank pays it $4. So it goes into the railroad's coffers to be used future turns for building. Once that's done, we move to the next company and we resolve all five companies just like that. Rinse, repeat, go to the next round, buy shares in the next company. Buy, buy shares however you want to. This round, the second round, and another round, you'll be able to build twice. There's two build phases. So you, you go through all the companies. Next build phase, you start at the top and you go through it again. That's it. I, I don't want to go beyond that from the mechanics. We've covered the mechanics. You should understand, believe it or not, how to play this game. Straightforward, very simple. But now let's talk strategy. Oh my gosh, this is so good. You're sitting there trying to think, how do I want the destiny of this company to go? How much money do I want to invest in all the stocks? Who's going to be driving up the dividends? Where is the next stop bump up in stock price? I need to get it before it does that. Oh, wait, is he close to increasing the dividends? All this is running through your mind as you're thinking about the stock. It's not a bidding. I keep using the term. There's no bidding. You pay for the freaking stock. That's all you do. You're not bidding against one another. All that's going through your head because you're like, if I don't get it in this round, next round, when they build, it will go up and I may not have enough money to invest in. 
I'm sorry, Marie, that's what was going through my head as I was playing this game, trying to figure out where my strategy is. Actually, it's simplistic, but very intense. For me, it was. Yeah. And here's the thing. Let's track all this money again, all right? Because this is really important. The only way that you get money is by the dividends that are paid from the stock that you own, okay? And that's where I screwed myself in our first game. I did not invest in enough stocks because I overpaid in some and you guys made more dividends. So on the next stock round, you had more money to buy more stock, more so than what I did. So the only time money is going out of your supply is when you're buying stock. The only time you're getting money is dividends from the stock that you own. The railroad only ever gets money when it sells stock and when dividends are paid to it, but always pays to build the railroads. Now, what's interesting, Tony, is this. If all the stocks have been purchased, let's say for purple, that we're three quarters of the way through the game and everybody's bought all the available stocks of purple, that means there's no money going to that company anymore because there's no stocks being bought because they're all sold and that company will not be making any dividends because all the stocks are owned by somebody else. And what does that mean? It has less money to build track. So it may not be able to make the next destination point. And what happens every time you don't, the stock value drops, making it less and less. Because at the end of the game, you're going to get whoever has the most money, whoever has the most money in their supply, plus the value of each of the stocks they own. In the game, whoever has the most money in front of them, whoever, then you total up all your shares in the stock price of that company. You add all that together. Whoever has the most money wins. But there is one way for a company to still get money. And that way is through leasing. There are restrictions on how many trains can be built in certain in the squares. You can have as many trains as you want in a city or in an urban area. But you can only have one train in a out there in the wild. So if you want your train to be able to go from this urban area to the next urban area, and you see that purple has that path, if you can connect up to purple, you can then lease track from purple and connect to the next city and place your train. That lease money goes back into the railroad. So in a way, when you're building track, you need to be looking at, oh, how will another company be able to lease my tracks so that we can generate revenue for them so that we continue to build to urban cities, which will allow our dividend shares to go in or increase our market value when we go to a major city. Another strategy point, just something else. And I, I love the lease mechanism, Marty. It was simple to follow. And this is an interesting thing of this kind of a semi-co-op thing. If you and I own a share in the orange stock, it benefits both of us to make sure to get to the next city with the orange stock. But what happens, Tony, if Bert owns two shares of orange stock and you and I only own one apiece? We have to make a decision at this point. Do we decide, well, crap, if we connect to another major city, his stock value will go up more than what ours is because he now has two shares of stock. So if the stock value was to go up by $2, he's actually getting an increase in four while we're only getting an increase of two. So maybe we don't try to connect the orange to another major city at that point and keep Bert from doing it so that the value of his stock doesn't go up. But then our value goes down, but not 
two times as much. As much. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. So he needs to invest his shares and do the correct building. But you may decide to splinter off mm-hmm. from a main line to try to keep somebody from actually connecting a city, especially if they own lots of shares in that particular stock. That's the strategy. How am I going to increase the value of my portfolio? It's very simple mechanisms, very easy to teach. And I was just like, this is, this is so enjoyable. It reminded me of a very simple version of City of the Big Shoulders because you mentioned that earlier. Because that's one of the first games we ever played where there was three pools of money, right? There was the bank, there was the company's money, there was your personal supply. And this mimics that in the same way. Each of those supplies spend money and get money in different ways. And it's just keeping track of all that. Again, you only ever spend yours to buy stock. And you're only going to ever get money through dividends. But a key difference is you wanted to make your company more appetizing for the other investors and big shoulders. Here is one of those things. True. Here's one of those things that you still want someone to help you build track because you got to get that stock price up. But I don't want you to benefit as much as me. Mm -hmm. If you can get a copy of Iberian, highly recommended, especially if you enjoy stock market games. One of my favorites so far this year, and the year's almost come to an end, so the squirrelies are just around the corner. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're coming up fast here in 2022, so the, I've definitely jotted this one down. And I will say, uh, again, kudos to Ian O'Toole. Everything that you need to know about how this game plays is written on the board. It tells you the cost of laying the track. There's the round markers. Again, there's a stock, a build, stock, build, build, stock, build, build, stock, build, game over. The iconography on the board tells you everything you need to know, so you don't really need to go back and reference the rules. It's got a nice track for stock tracking, the dividend cost, the share cost, everything. Brilliant design uh, there. Yep. Of the three, this is now my favorite just because I love economic games so much. And I always measure these games as, you know, so it's on Marty's shelves, doesn't need to be on my shelf. Now, Normally, I would say definitely this should be on my shelves. The problem I have with it is this is not a game I think Donna would enjoy. Even though it's a light share game, train game, I just don't see that because to her, you know, Ticket to Ride is a fun game where she's building track, right? This is going to have that economic flavor to it, and I don't know if she would get into it. So I kind of like, maybe I should leave my copy out in the wild for someone else to enjoy. I would love mm-hmm. to own it. I absolutely w- would, but I don't think I would get to play it with her as much as I will with you and our other people in our play great group. So something to, to, to remember. Do you think Vanessa would enjoy it? Probably not. She's not in economic games either, but here's what I would love to do. I'd love to play a five players. I think five players would be insane because there'll be so much activity on the board. And it would move fast. It, it, this game will move fast. It doesn't matter the player count. No, it doesn't. It does move uh, super fast. Iberian Gage from designer Amabel Holland, published by Capstone Games. Two big thumbs up from us. We said at the beginning of the episode that we had a lot of games that we wanted to cover. And the best way to do that was with five-minute initiatives. So, Tony, what we're going to do is we're going to shotgun some five-minute initiatives. I'm talking back to back to back to back to back till we get all the way through them. You know what the best thing is about a shotgun, Marty? What's that? You don't have to aim. You don't have to be precise. So this is perfect for this show. Here we go. 
five-minute initiative begins in three, two, one. In the game Meadow, players are wanderers observing nature, home to the most interesting stories where animals and plants are the main actors. And I could keep reading to you the intro to the rule book, but I will let you <laughs> discover it on your own. Meadow is designed by Clemens Kalicki, distributed by or produced by Rebel Studios. Now, this game is kind of like, I don't know if it's a tableau building game, Marty, or... I would call it that. You'd call it a tableau building I, game? I would. I would. Yeah. Because yeah. on your turn, you're going to perform an action by either placing your token in a notch on the main board where there are four rows and four columns of cards that build your tableau. And those tokens will tell you which row or which space you can take from it. Like if you place in, there's a one, you can take the first card that it's pointing to. If it's the third one, it's the third one in that row or that third one in that column, however you want to do it. Or you're going to put it on the campfire board and it turns and you have a special action. So the whole object is selecting cards that meet certain requirements. And when you play those to your tableau, they cover up those requirements. So it's very important on how you place them. So when you get other cards, you can place them for the whole end goal of getting victory points. Now, for me, the hardest part of this game was selecting the column in the row to get the right cards you want to meet the objectives. Well, like I said, you start out with just a basic card, like a ground card. And that ground card has a certain icon on it. And there may be another card in the tableau that says, well, for you to be able to play this card, you must have an existing card in your tableau with this matching icon. It's like, all right, cool. I'm able to successfully do this. I have all the matching icons and this card's worth victory points. Sweet. So when you claim it, you must put it on top of another existing card, which like you said, will cover the icon of the card below it. So now all of a sudden, what happens if that card had a bug on it and you have no other cards with bugs, then you won't be able to claim any other cards with bugs till you play another card with a bug that's on it. So you got to strategically decide, when am I going to start covering cards up? Make sure I have access to all the icons I need for getting higher point victory, uh, higher victory point cards. And that's in your tableau. But you also, what's cool, is you're going down a path, Tony. We're looking at a meadow. You're creating a path. You're going down a trail. And when you go down a path, you actually create, grab these path cards that you could put into play in a separate section on your tableau. And those cards can be covered up with things you see in the meadow, which also produce victory points. But like you said, it all comes down to claiming a card from those from a certain row or a certain column or taking an action on the, uh, the board off to the side, which may let you claim an additional card or claim a, a card from a, anywhere on the, on the, the, in the tableau, et cetera. And this is basically played over a course of six rounds. Mm -hmm. And there are, there's the North, South, East, West decks. The North and the South deck have various symbols in them. When you bring in the North, you have more victory point cards associated, but they have more requirements that are needed. And another thing is if you go to the campground or the campfire board, then you are going to take one of four actions, depending on the number of players. And it may either let you take a card that's, immediate off the board, but you can't play it, or you'll be able to play two cards. So you have to really decide between, do I go to the campfire or do I go to the main board to claim a card? Because those are the choices. Also, there are goals that you must achieve. And these goals are important. And if you show both a mushroom and let's say a squ squirrel or a toad or something as a goal, if you have those two cards showing, 
then you can claim that goal and place one of your victory point tokens there. And the more goals you claim, the higher the victory point goals or tokens are. And at most, you got three of those. At most, when you're playing, one person will never get all of theirs out. It's just how the game works, real simple, but you have to place that token at the campfire in order to claim it. So now you got to sacrifice these things. So a lot of decision-making there, but it is a solitary game, or at least that's how it felt for me. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of interaction unless somebody takes a card from you or the spot around the campfire. Only one person can claim uh, one of the victory point locations. By the way, the spaces around the campfire randomize every turn. There's a place in between two icons. If you have those two icons in your tableau, you can claim the victory spot between those two icons around the campfire. First person there gets it. Nobody else can go there. So it is kind of a race at that point, Tony, to claim those uh, victory point spots around the campfire. But we, you and I did that early. Yeah. Like in the first three rounds, we were done with that and then moved on to just building our tableau as effectively as we can to generate the most victory points. But you're right. It does become in the second half of the game more of a solitaire game. I do want to mention one other thing. There were two books in there, the rule book and then the explanation book of all the cards. That book was amazing. You could sit there and read about every one of those cards and what it means along those lines. That kind of detail was very nice to have in it. So Meadow for me is one of those very simple family games that you maybe want to get out on the table with the younger players to help them understand how a tableau building game works. That is Meadow from Rebel Studios designed by Clemens Kalicki. Back in 2016, I got to play a game from Gale Force 9 called Tyrants of the Underdark. This is a game based in the D&D world. And this was one of the first games I ever played where the deck building wasn't necessarily the core mechanic of the game. Instead, you used deck building in order to achieve area control on a board. So it was this really cool mesh of two different mechanisms of deck building and area control. The thing about that game, and we talked about this when we five years ago when we reviewed it, as good as the game is, we thought it was a little pricey because it was around $70, $75. Well, Gale Force 9 has said, you know what? We're going to come out with the second edition of the game with the MSRP only being 50 bucks, and it includes the expansions. So you got the base game and all the expansions for a lot cheaper price. And Tony, you and I got to play this. I love this game back in 2016. I think it's a really cool, simple concept regular deck building rules, except you're going to use those cards in order to be able to move around the board, claim locations on the board, and each of those locations can generate victory points. And it's going to be about controlling those certain locations at the end of the game for whoever has the most victory points wins. That's it. So deck builder, make the deck work for you, make the combos work for you, develop your synergy along those lines and keep wrestling with that area control from other players so that you can keep developing those victory points. Simple. The strategy is how am I able to get my forces onto the board by using my spies or building a network path to get the most victory points and the various control points that you needed. Some strategies will come out based on the cards and I'll admit, you know, it's been a while, but when I was playing that, it quickly came back to me. Oh, okay. I remember how these cards are going to work together. Ooh, that's an interesting combo that I need to look at. Oh, I hope I get to play this card so that I can really key in on what I've been building as it rolled out. That's about it. I mean, I enjoyed the game because if I remember correctly, the original game had a bunch of cute little 
plastic things, didn't it? In the original, you had plastic pieces to represent uh, your pieces on the board. And you you play cards from your hand, pay resources to basically, like you said, get pieces onto the board, get spiles onto the board to uh, attack other players. Those plastic pieces have been replaced by little cardboard tokens. So that's where they were able to drop the cost of the game is by getting rid of all the plastic pieces and just replacing them with cardboard. I don't know that it detracts too much. It is cool seeing all those colorful pieces on the board. It looked had more of a table presence. But again, our, the biggest complaint about that game was just how expensive it was. So they have cut the cost by making little cardboard tokens. And typical deck building fashion, you play out all your cards. You can generate resources to buy cards from the market. Now, this is cool. The market is different every game. You take two different types of market decks, shuffle them together to create the market. And each market has different types of characters and events in them that... Uh, will change from game to game depending on which deck you have. And that's where the expansions came in, Tony. They included extra decks. That's just now a part of the base game. But Tony, one thing I really loved is culling was important. When you were able to take an action to cull a card out of your deck, there was a separate spot off to your side of the play area that if you had cards in that spot, they were worth more points than if they were in your deck at the end of the game. But once again, you gotta be careful with culling because you can get yourself in trouble by not being able to generate the resources you need to get more cards. And one of the things about this deck builder that I enjoy is the fact that I'm not trying to beat someone down. Just like you have in some other deck builders, you're not going me against you, it's me trying to get control to generate victory points. Now, you may be going head to head. So say, for example, there are some spots on the board that are worth more, especially because some of the spots on the board will generate victory points for you as long as you control it at the end of every turn. So, Tony, there was a spot in the middle of the board that was worth some uh, points. It would generate resources for you and create victory points if you had total control. So I might start moving my guys in there and try to assassinate some of your pieces for me to try to try to take control, as soon as I do, I get that little token from you that it would then help me generate free resources and victory points for me on my turn. So the head-to-head comes in fighting over the different spots on the board. Right, but I'm not trying to defeat, beat you down. I'm not trying oh, to... Oh, no, no, no. It's right not ahead. like... Yeah, it's, it's not like a magic thing where we're trying to knock down each other's health. You're just trying to build the best synergistic deck as possible to create some really cool combos to get your stuff out on the board, competing against other people, fighting over the exact same spots. This game plays two to four players. I think it is a smooth game. It scales well because the map, the number of spaces available to you varies based on the size of players. It plays fast. It says 90 minutes. I think it plays quicker than 90 minutes. So from, from my standpoint, I didn't miss the plastic. Keep it low cost. Different deck builder if you're looking for one. So go take a look at it. That's Tony's point of view, Marty. Yeah. So here's the thing. I was still blown away back then by it's like, holy cow, I'm just used to a regular old deck builder like Dominion. And you throw this in here with mixing in the area control. To me, it's like Clank. Deck building with dungeon delving or dungeon diving. This is deck building with area control. I still think it's just as good as it was Five years ago when I played it, Tyrants and the Underdark 2nd Edition by Gale Force 9, designers Peter Lee, Rodney Thompson, and Andrew Veen. So we're going back in time. Okay, maybe not. That's different. That's a different one. That We got to play from Pandasaurus, The Loop, designed by Max, Maxime Romberg and Thea Riviera. This is a cooperative game. 
mm-hmm. where you are trying to keep the space-time continuum working right, and that is by beating Dr. Foe. Yeah. Tony, he's dropping random agents around the board in different times and space, and we have to eliminate those agents and complete missions before he just totally corrupts all the different time sectors on the board. But it's not like we got to destroy just the agents. There's various things that we have to do. There are various quests that we have to do to keep the time element together. And in doing those quests, and if you complete four of them in the game we were playing, then you win the game. If Mm -hmm. you don't, guess what? You lose. It's a cooperative game. We can go into, you're going to be playing cards, you're going to try to be sharing cards, you're going to be trying to do various events in this game. It's it's somewhat of a somewhat of a deck builder with a twist, because mm-hmm. you draw cards at the beginning of your turn, use all the cards that you can during your turn, and then uh, over the course of the game, you're going to be able to collect artifacts. If you're in a certain sector that has an artifact card in that sector, you can get it and add it to your discard pile. So you can tweak your deck over the course of the game. Actually, your artifact goes into your draw pile for next hand. Oh, I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. So that's the nice little twist that uh, that you actually get to get it next turn. And everybody has a different player abilities in that you, everybody has different starting decks. And what's important about the loop, what's the cool thing about the loop is when you use a card, it's exhausted. If you happen to be in a sector with some green resource cubes, and there's ways to get the green source resource cubes onto the, the table, you can spend one of those cubes to reset all cards with like icons. So let's say I'm trying to build my deck with all this one particular icon so that I can take all these really cool actions, spend a cube, reset my cards, and do it again. So the loop is basically being able to Take the same actions again during your turn. Now, what is the pandemic effect of this game? How is it that suddenly something bad happens? Well, Dr. Foe, Mm -hmm. a time period turns over, and based on the number of his agents in there, you will drop bad cubes into his time machine, and there are three paths out of it. And if any time period has more than four of those bad cubes, a bad thing happens. You lose your ability to do your objective. It's gone. Yeah, basically that that mission's gone. Gone. You can't even work on it anymore. So you have limited number of missions that you can achieve. So with every sector that drops, you're now limiting yourself to what objectives can be done. And there's different types of objectives. It could be they're, they're random set each game. It could be, hey, you need to... Knock out the Dr. Fro agent when you're in a certain sector. And when you do, you get to add a completion cube to this sector. And there's different number of cubes that are added to each one to achieve the missions. Again, random every game, but you're working together to complete those missions. You can spend cards on your turn to push agents to and from certain time sectors. Because Tony, when they come out on the board, they're random. And to be able to, to get rid of those agents, those agent discs must end up in the same color time sector as what color they are. And when they do, poof, they're gone. So you're constantly trying to move agents around on the board with your abilities in order to clear the agents off the board. Because like you said, if you don't, when it's time to drop those uh, resources, which can contaminate uh, the different time sectors, the more agents you have on the board, the more cubes you're going to drop. That's right. Any matter cannot exist with matter. Doesn't matter. It's kind of like the infection deck, right? Mm-hmm. There's the infection deck where more cubes come out of board. That's what this mechanism is. It's the infection deck of the loop. And it gives you a random, this is probably the neatest part of the game. It is a random way of determining where those 
cubes are going to appear and how they can mess up the space-time continuum. Once again, it is a cooperative game that requires tight strategy between the players in order to defeat it. Again, when you drop those dice into the little tower or the little cubes into the tower, you just keep your fingers crossed that they don't go into the one that already has you know, three cubes in there, one more, and it's going to to shut it down and boom, they all roll right in there. So there's that randomization thing that you got to be worried about. So you, and you, here's the thing, Tony, you don't know where there's going to dice going to be dropped next turn. You turn over a card and it tells you, so you got to kind of keep every sector clear of those cubes uh, so that wherever sector it goes to, hopefully it doesn't mess you up too bad. But as, as the round progresses, one thing you do know, if that, time period appears you know it's not going to get appear again i said dice or i meant cubes, yeah i know what you yeah, i know what you meant dice. there's no there's no dice in this game so you got three chances three rounds in order to defeat him because as you're flipping over those time period cards when you're done exhausting all the time periods you move to the next one and the stakes get higher that's the timing mechanism definitely look at the loop this is from pandasaurus games from maxime romberg and theo riviera Every once in a while, a game comes out that kind of surprises me. And that's what happened with this game from Cosmos. It's in it's called Dimension. This game was actually published in 2014 by designer Loge Luchal. And it's available right now in Barnes & Noble. This game is played over the course of six rounds. Everybody has a tableau. Everybody has five different colored balls. Three of each color. Black, white, orange, blue, and green. And on your tableau, you got seven holes to be able to place seven of the balls, then you can stack on top of those, basically another three balls, and then one on top of that for a total of 11. You think, okay, big deal. So I'm stacking these different color balls. Here's the thing. At the beginning of each round, six task cards will be put on the table. You must complete as many of those tasks as you can. Now, some of those tasks, Tony, might be like, all right, if you have a blue ball, it must always touch an orange ball. And you go, okay, so if I ever place an orange, it must always touch a blue and vice versa. Okay, that's easy. I, I got that. I got that. Or it could be, it's like, all right, so white and green can never touch. And it's like, oh, okay. If I place a white, I got to make sure it never touches a green. Okay, what else? It's like, oh, you must have at least one black ball on the table. Oh, okay. So there's these six tasks that over the course of just two minutes, you got a nice little sand timer there you have two minutes to complete as many of these tasks as possible to generate victory points at the end of the round count up all the balls that are stacked how many tasks did you complete for everyone you did not complete it's minus two points and if you complete all the tasks you get a nice little bonus token that you collect as many as you can over the course of the game for bonus points tony this game had a lot of a lot more tension to it than what i was expecting because when you put out those six cards and flip the timer you constantly you got to quickly process all those tasks and try to match everything that you're supposed to do over that course of two minutes. And anytime you put a timer on you, it's going to increase the tension. It's going to increase the heart rate. Can you comprehend what they're trying to do? Quickly do it together. Now, you don't have to use all 11 spots. You don't have to stack it all the way up, but you've got to complete those tasks where it's negative victory points. And it's just one of those things where your brain is sitting there firing and nothing is more satisfying than going through those cards and saying, I've met them all. And someone points out, no, you didn't. And you're like, (laughs) you got to be kidding me. And if you had just moved that one ball, you would have been fine. 
If you hadn't tried to push, because one of your for every ball you use, you get another point. So mm-hmm. if you use all 11, that's 11 points. So you're trying to maximize that. It's always to that point where there is a race against time. You're not really racing against other people so much while you're playing this. It's how well can you do? But you begin to feel the pressure in later rounds because if someone is constantly stacking 11 and you're only stacking, say, eight, you are falling farther and farther behind. For me, a guy who is terrible at space relations, this game was extremely hard. But whenever I accomplished all of them, it gave me extreme satisfaction. Yeah, and here's the thing is there's I didn't even mention all the different types of tasks. Some of them say like a green cannot be stacked on top of another ball. Mm-hmm. Or it could be a a blue must always be on the first layer. There could be or there could be nothing on top of the blue or something like that. You could have it forces you to stack balls on top, forces you to stack the balls on the bottom. And again, you need to complete all you that you can because those bonus tokens, like I said, are worth points because here's the thing. You have to get at least three bonus tokens to break even. If you only if you have no bonus tokens, it's minus six points. Mm-hmm. One bonus token is minus two. Three is to break even and you go from there. So it's really forcing you not only to complete all the tasks you need to, or it's worth negative points at the, at the end. It's, it's a mi- nice little puzzle that I just really enjoyed uh, that more so than what I thought I would. And it only took us seven years. It's one of those games that you will see in Barnes and Noble, and you're like, eh, eh, maybe, maybe another time. Buy it. It's a great, fun family game, and you don't have to use the timer if you don't want to. Extend your timer. Do whatever you want. Well, the timer is the best part, and it wasn't like we dealed out six cards and and like, all right, let's look and see what task we got. It's six cards. Flip the timer. So as soon as the timer's going, you're trying to process. And here's a we didn't mention this. Cards can contradict each other. There might be a card that says orange and blue can't touch. Orange and blue must touch. So here's the thing. Either you're not going to satisfy one of those or you have, or you use no orange or blue balls at all. Mm-hmm. I love it. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. Dimension, publisher from Cosmos, one to four players, plays 30 minutes, easy to learn. This is one of those like end of the game night games for me, Tony. Yeah, and be sure to check it out over on the BGG site because there are some important rule corrections that you need to make sure that you're aware of that help you as you're playing the game. Zombie Princess is on the loose and she is looking for some new knights to add to her dungeon. That's right, we played Zombie Princess in the Enchanted Maze by designer Andrew Beardsley, published by WizKids Games. And all this is about is knights are in a maze in a dungeon with a zombie princess. They're trying to get their key and get the heck out of Dodge because if they don't, she's going to turn you into a zombie and you will forever be in her maze just ambling around lost, a a, a lost soul. On your turn, you're going to roll a die to activate the zombie princess and you will either be placing a tile, rotating a tile, and moving the zombie princess if it can be done. Once you're done with that, then you move on to your knight's turn. You'll be placing a tile, rotating a tile, moving your knight, and if you're playing the advanced rules, maybe playing an advanced token. You will then get your tiles up to three, and the next player goes. 
The whole purpose of this is to move across the maze, get to your key, and get the heck out, as I said. Meanwhile, other players are trying to use the zombie princess to chase you down. The winner is the first one out of the maze. That's it. Zombie princess. It's a tiling game. First, the board is empty. No tiles whatsoever. Your key is on the opposite corner of where you start. All of us are putting the tiles on the board, which is just paths, basically, for us to follow, for the zombie princess to follow. Anybody, once the tiles are on the table, uh, they can be rotated and taken advantage by other people. And you're trying to build a path all the way across, like you said. And it's one of those things, it is a race. At, at the core of this game is a race to get to the other side and get the key. Like you said, get the heck out of Dodge. Get back to the center of the board. Center of the board has a nice little little castle that you build with little pieces and stuff. You're trying to get there and, and get out. Thing is, there are other people trying to get the zombie princess to you on their turn. If they happen to get the zombie princess in the same space as you, like you said, Tony, you become a zombie yourself. At that point, you are trying to chase down the other knights that are still alive and keep them from getting the key. Why would I want to do that? Because you don't want the others to win. That's it. Because if somebody gets to the center, they're the one that wins the game. So now you're working with the zombie princess to try to tag the others that are left. And hopefully nobody wins. So it's a game of tag. That's exactly what it is. Zombie princess is trying to tag you. If it happens, then you're going to be trying to tag the others. So again, it's very simple. Place a tile, rotate a tile, move. And you do that for the zombie princess and you do that for yourself. Unique concepts in this game are the fact that you're able to rotate tiles that nobody's on, or if you're on, you're able to rotate them. So you're always looking at or making a hard choice of, is this tile that I want to move to benefit me, or do I need to mess up Marty? Do I need to mess him up by rotating it and kind of mess up his next move? Because he will waste a turn. If you rotate his tile, he can rotate it right back on his turn. What, what harm is in that? Well, it makes him waste a turn. So maybe that will give the other player. Now there is the opportunity for people to team up on one another. Uh, but when everybody's a knight, that's not going to happen. I found this game to be kind of solitary at the beginning, Marty, where it was just kind of like me trying to get my path the quickest. I don't know. Did you feel that way at all? Well, here's the thing. When there's no tiles on the board, there's not much to do. The zombie princess can't move very far. You can't move very far. But once enough tiles are on the board and you start interconnecting with the tiles been placed by the other players, that's when it can get a little crazy. And by the way, when you move, you move as far as you can. It's not like move one tile at a time. If you can happen to set up and get a long path, you can go as far as you can. The role of the zombie princess die will tell you how far she moves. She may not activate at all. She may rage and go as far as she can, or she may move only one or two tiles. And it's not spaces. It is physical tiles. And that's a, yes. that's a very important thing to clarify in the rules. I mean, overall, unique tile-laving game, nice little concept of a race towards the end. If you're tired of playing Carcassonne or something, I can understand that, where you want to go attack each other. Um, but I did. I did. I'm sorry. I found it to be very solitary. But maybe I will, I will definitely say I wasn't playing it to try to mess them up. I was too busy trying to figure out how to get to my key. That's what, well, that's here's the thing is uh, I was the one that kind of got to the key first and we were playing with Bert and he kept sending that zombie princess towards me. So I was having to deal with that thing in order to try to work my way back to the middle. So at the beginning of the game, yes, you are just kind of working by yourself. But once the tiles start interconnecting, then it kind of opens up the entire game. And see, I was no threat. So I never had that feeling. 
<laughs> so that is Zombie Princess from WizKids Game, designed by Andrew Beardsley. Five-minute initiative is complete. So like building on the power of the Tesseract Cube, rock. What? Didn't like that start? I thought that was pretty good. No, no that's pretty good. Okay. I was not expecting that. All very, right, thank very you. Well done. And, and I actually got it right. It's the Tesseract Cube, right? Yeah, the Tesseract, yeah. Tesseract, which I got to ask you another question. What's it then? An outro cost. This is a commercial for Robinsberger's new villainous series, Mischief and Malice. The Marvel Universe continues to get nasty. <laughs> Oh my god! What, is that in the copy that you're reading, or is that was just off the top of your head? That's that's off the top. It's that's oh, okay, where the brilliance comes from. Oh, the brilliance. The brilliance. Right, keep going. Yeah. yeah, all yeah, right. yeah so yeah, tell, yeah. tell me about this. Uh, we know about villainous. Tell, tell me about this Marvel version. Well, here. so with this version, it's building on uh, the previous one where you were battling with Thanos, and that one was very complicated. We we've talked about it in a previous episode, but in this one, you've got Loki, you've got Madame Mosk. M-A-S-Q-U-E. I think I said that right. And M period O period D period O period K. Modoc. Modoc. Modoc, who currently has a show on, I believe it's Hulu, by Patrick Oswalt. And it's like a comedy. It's animated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's Modoc. He's got the really big head and the small body. Yeah. As with all the villainous games, they are cross-compatible. You can play them with other series to try to. And basically, you're trying to be the biggest, the baddest, the meanest villain out there. And same mechanics, just different ways of playing, different objectives, different ways to mess each other up. And for those of you who are not familiar with villainous, you are the villain and the heroes are coming to battle you so it's very important that you're doing that but as the villain you want to mess up the other villains so you're hoping that their heroes will go and attack them and every character is totally different right so everybody has their own special abilities which is really cool absolutely matter of fact if you wanted to battle loki versus oh i don't know scar you could do that. You could cross all that Marvel stuff up. I'm waiting for on Disney Plus for that to happen where Scar battles Loki or something in the Loki universe. Who knows? Anyway, Robinsberger has a new villainous out, Marvel villainous, Mischief and Madness. I'm sorry, malice. Mischief and Malice. Sorry about that. Go check it out over at Target. Wait, you can get this at Target? You can also get it probably at Amazon.com or Robinsberger. Wow. Very cool. Marvel villainous, Mischief and Malice. So anytime Marty and I start playing a new card game, playing in tableaus, we're always looking for certain elements of it. And we got to the table, a Stefan Feld card game called Coco Paley. And for me, Marty, this was when you first started talking about it. I was like, all right, how is this not different than so-and-so? Or how is this going to entertain me? And it did just by the various actions on the cards. And I know I'm skipping ahead as I always do, but it's always about, for me, what grabs me. Every type of card, every set has a different rule because the rules are simple. And I'm going to turn it over to you because you do rules so much better than me. On your turn, you get two actions per turn. You can draw a card from your deck. Open a ceremony, which means that you have four spots on your board. You can open a ceremony, which means 
take a blank spot and then put down a card. You can extend a ceremony, meaning if there's a ceremony in play, you could play the like card of that ceremony in order to uh, extend it. And you can just cancel a ceremony or you can just exchange cards, which is basically empty your hand and draw again. So why are you trying to play cards? It's because the ceremony cards that you play break the rules. Break them. They snap So, them. for example, you may play a ceremony. At the end of your turn, you draw a card. But if I have a ceremony in play that says draw two instead of one, that's breaking a rule. Typically, it takes four cards to close a ceremony, meaning once the four of the same type of cards are stacked on one slot, that ceremony is closed. It goes away. Rules can be changed to say, well, I have another ceremony card in play that says, well, now it only takes three cards to close a ceremony. There are some wild cards, Tony. That counts as any card. They're typically only worth one, but there are some rules that can be broken that says, okay, now they're worth two. Typically, you can't open a ceremony in an opponent's village. An opponent is a person to your left and person to the right. The two closest spots on the their boards to you on either side. Typically, you can only extend a ceremony in their village, which is cool. You can play in other people's village, but you can't open a ceremony. You may have a, 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 a ceremony card that allows you to open a ceremony in somebody else's village. So you've got these basic rules, these basic mechanics. The ceremonies that you play totally break and change those rules. When a ceremony gets closed out and those victory points are collected, that's big. How that goes, how people are collecting victory points, you got to be making sure you don't give people that opportunity to close out the ceremony or, ooh, ooh, or they're really using the rules to their advantage. Maybe you want them to go ahead and get a little victory points to close out that ceremony so that they don't get to do that rule anymore. They get some victory points. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But now I get to play it because only that one ceremony can be in existence at one time. So, so you're sitting there. It's a race. Oh, what cards did I get? Oh, I need to open this ceremony. But Marty's got it. So we got to get that closed. We got to get that closed fast so that I can get it on the board as well. Yeah, I'll be playing to his hand, but I know I've got more cards that are going to come up with that same ceremony. A lot of strategy in this game. And then to figure out the combos of the various way the cards break, that is key in this game. You'll be sitting there because there, there's ways to put these ceremonies out. But we just what? We just picked randomly, didn't we, Marty? We said, oh, we'll do this one, this one, this one, and this one. They say for your starter game, use these. And we play, I think for the first game, we did it the way they recommended. And uh, we liked it so much, we said, all right, now let's just do random. So we did an, another random so we could see a bunch of the different types of ceremonies. So every time it is going to be random, whatever 10 cards you get, you actually put like little tokens in the middle of the board representing each of those types of cards that are in play. And totally like you said, when you collect victory points, when you close a ceremony, you claim one of the victory point tokens off that piece in the middle of the table representing that card with the, the first one you claim is going to be worth most, the worth the most victory points, eventually closing a ceremony of that type won't be worth any victory points anymore. So you're trying to be the first to close every type of ceremony because those are worth the most points. But like you said, what's interesting is you may have a really cool combo in play that's just destroying me because you get to play one ceremony against the other and it's really helping you out. I may strive to hurry up and get that closed. And even though 
I closed it. It's on your side in your tableau. You get the victory points for it. Mm -hmm. But now, like you said, I might can open it on mine and create my own little combo. When we first started playing, Marty, I was kind of like, yeah, this is okay. But as I got to dwell into the strategy, I'm like, okay, I'm really enjoying this. I'm really liking how this game is working and how I can mess with you. I'm liking how some of these cards are going to allow me to play beyond the active play area, which is my ceremonies and the person to the left and right of me. Now, two-player game, all the ceremonies are active. Everybody can be playing in them, except in a two-player game, you get to open a fifth ceremony in the middle, which is out of play. So that's kind of important. So, it, But it scaled well for two players, for you and I. It did. And But I think, I think more players would be fun because then whatever cards that are played to the left and right of you, it heavily impacts what, what you can do, but you can't work or help uh, somebody that's sitting like across the table from you. I will say for a failed game, typically Stefan failed games are known for like point salads. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, there's all these ways to create victory points. You know, like in Trajan, it's like I can do this to create victory points or do this to uh, different actions. And, and you probably can't do them all. What I love about this one is there's really only one way to get victory points closing ceremonies mm -hmm. so it's not like there's a lot of paths to victory it's really like who's best at getting the ceremonies into play in their play area that benefits them the most and be able to close ceremonies effectively to generate the most victory points possible so there's not like multiple paths to victory points there's only one it's just whoever can do it the most efficient making this to me one of the easier fields to get into. Right. So, I mean, some of the cards like the tortoise, when you complete a ceremony, you are awarded one victory point. Okay. So there's an advantage for me closing out, uh, closing out a ceremony, maybe on your side or on my side. So I get mm. an additional victory point. And then you combo those with others. But you're right. The key victory points are definitely in closing ceremonies in the middle of the board. You're always looking for how can I get a reward by playing these cards. And I enjoy that a lot in these types of games. And you're going to keep playing until somebody's draw deck is exhausted or all the victory point tokens have been claimed off the middle of the table. So you have a set number. So you're not going to claim them all. There, there's these in-game scorings that are set up based on the number of players. You're right. Every time you close a ceremony, there's an exhausted token that you put out. And the number of exhausted tokens depends on the number of players. So it may not you may not claim all the victory points. It's just that all the exhausted tokens are used up. This is one of these types of discussions where we have about a game, Marty, that I often find that it's difficult to really get across just the complexity or the strategy of a game. I mean, it's card play. It's breaking rules with cards, kind of like what we did with silver, except it's on a whole different plane. It's on a whole different level than that. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, it's like, okay, you enjoy playing cards. You enjoy the various rules changing. Well, what was it? Flux rules, always changing that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you actually mentioned it that night. It's kind of like flux, except, you know, to the nth degree in that there's cards in the middle of the table that will change the rules of how you play the game. Again, very simple. On your turn, you get two things. You can draw a card, open a ceremony that must be on your side, extend a ceremony, which is anywhere in your play area. Once it gets to four, it closes, or, or just draw a whole new set of cards. That's it. But all those cards that you're going to be able to put, the ceremony type cards, breaks all those rules, and it's just whoever can most effectively doing it. Like drawing a card, being able to draw two instead, excellent. You go through your deck quicker. Closing a ceremony with fewer cards, excellent. You can claim those victory points faster. I really, really enjoy this. Again, fail games can be 
complex and tough to get into. Again, I think this is really one of the easier ones I've ever played from him. Yeah. So, and another game I'm going to compare it to as far as rule change, like Red 7. Remember how popular that was? Mm-hmm. Where people were constantly playing Red 7? If you enjoyed that, consider this one. It's it's not the same of, oh, okay, cards in the middle, the, those rules. But once again, rules are breaking, constantly being adjusted, and all the rules are in play for everybody. So you have to look at not only what's in his ceremony and how does it impact you. I really enjoyed this game. I hope you get a chance to play it. If you haven't, come visit us in Charlotte. Uh, hey, we'll put it on the table for you. We'll play it in a heartbeat. Yeah, this was uh, on Kickstarter. It was it's published by Queen Games, and uh, it's out now. Coca Polo. Coco Poli. Coco Paley. Coco Paley. Thank you. I spelled it wrong in my notes here. Yeah, by Stefan Feld. Oh, yeah. This this ain't going anywhere off my shelf. I don't know that, Tony, if I would play this and I didn't know who designed it, I would have said it was Feld. It doesn't feel like a Feld, but now that you know he's done it, you see his handiwork inside of the game. Now, over the past couple of years, I've been a big proponent of Games Workshop miniature games. However... I have not gotten Tony into these miniature games because of time, money, etc., which which I totally understand and get. So I do have a lot of games sitting on my shelves that I have to play with my kids because nobody else will play with me. But that's beside the point because Games Workshop is coming out with a couple other games at Barnes & Noble, which are meant to be introductory games to their existing games, Warcry and Age of Sigmar, and Kill Team, which is based in the 40K universe. So we got these from Games Workshop, Tony. And as soon as I got them, I said, all right, Tony, here we go. I want to see what it would be like for somebody who hasn't put together a lot of GW stuff to get the box, open it, put the models together, learn the rules, then teach me. And you being the nice guy that you are, you said, oh, okay, I'll do that. I am. I am a nice guy. But I do want to make one point was there was one uh, Games Workshop game where I have a Skaven army in a box and I forget, I always forget what it is and I never put those models together. And it's sitting there ready to be played without the models together because I saw no reason to put the models together because we weren't playing again. And I forget what it was. Well, here's the nice thing about this. Everything that you need is in this box. Mm -hmm. He has a box of Skaven models to be played with a separate game. Everything that you need is right within this box that can be purchased from Barnes & Noble for just 50 bucks. So, Tony, I handed you the box of Warhammer 40K Fireteam. Go. I get this box. I open it up. Ooh, that's nice smell. That box smell. Nice box coming to me. Open it up. There's the rule book. There's this nice plastic insert for the cards. And then I pick it up. And Marty warned me. He says, now you're going to have to put these together. And I pick it up. And there's these two sheets of models on these sprues. And the next thing he says to me is, you need a sprue cutter. I didn't have a sprue cutter. I didn't have one. I haven't done this in forever. And I'm thinking, he's telling me, it's snapped to fit. How hard can it be? I'm thinking back to my childhood days where the was it Revel or Revel? What was the model company? Oh my gosh. I don't think it was Revel, but there maybe it was. I can't yeah. remember. There was a snap to fit car kits. Car yes. kits, planes, all snapped. I'm thinking this is going to be this piece of cake. I got this. I've done this. I Please, I've put together war machine models that are pewter and I've used the epoxy clay that you squish together and so it activates and can make hard and I've done all that. I got this. So I get out the rule book. I'm flipping through it and I find how to put these models together and cut to the chase. Marty gets this message and says, 
you're going to get nothing but bases. <laughs> I'm going to put t- labels on these bases and that's what you're going to get. And you calm me down by saying, well, Jamie and Joel said it was easy. I'm like, what? And I guess what got to me was putting these little bitty faces on these little bitty bodies and they were snapped to fit. I would have been happier if I could have just glued, but no, you had to snap them in. And then you had to find the things on the sprues and all the numbers were small and it just went to how old I am. And that right there is what got me. I'm old. I should have warned you that, yes, you're going to want readers. In fact, I use my, um, I have a special magnifying glasses for putting models together. And uh, typically I have those on so I can easily make sure. One thing you have to be very careful with these is if the snap to fit peg is the part that attaches to the sprue to not to accidentally cut the peg, which I have done before. Um, so that's why I'm now very careful. Like you said, there's sprues and each piece has a small number beside the part that you're supposed to cut. The rules specifically say, all right, you know, and they kind of show graphically what happens. Here's piece one. Here's piece two with arrows coming in. That's going to match right here. Piece three should come in right here. You're done. Put it in the base. That's it. Sort of deal. That's it. Now, I mean, that was pretty simple. And I'll have to admit, after I got rid of my anxiety, and I had a process because the sprue cutters arrived. I got frustrated with them because the heads kept falling on the floor. And I was getting, I was like, okay, this is making me angry. And then so Donna was going to help me. And to your point, sir, she, she was reading with her um, glasses because I didn't, I couldn't find my readers. And uh-huh. she was telling me which ones to cut out. And she goes, wouldn't it be easier if I cut them out? And I'm like, no, because I'd have to tell you where to cut them. Mm. Just to your point that the sprues, you had to be very careful on where you snip them, especially the part that was um, the Necrons, who was part of this base, and how their hands molded into the gun. You could cut that right up to their little wrist, their little bony wrist, and you would have cut off the part that you needed. So you had to pay attention to that. So you needed your your readers for that. So I had I had an, a magnifying glass that was provided to me by Portal Games, and I was using that to help me see all this. But overall. I got them together and then came the rule book. Before we move uh-huh. on from there. Now, I will say for anybody who does this, even though it's pushed to fit, there's no reason why you can't use glue. I have used glue before. Tony, I know what you're talking about, uh, where some of the heads have to be kind of put in place. And there's another piece that may snap on to hold the head mm-hmm. in place. Before I have taken a dab of glue, uh, put it to where the head attaches to let it set to keep from having to do that. So if you get this... Feel free to use glue if you want. In fact, you may want to to keep the parts from popping uh, apart. Sometimes I did that. If I didn't think there were snug fit, uh, I would take them off and do that. Joel Eddy from Drive Through Games said you, sometimes he'll just snap the pegs off. Forget the push to fit. He just glues them together and doesn't even mess with the pegs. But I will say once I got it down, after I put the first uh-huh. one down and then I got the second one of the other uh, faction. Space Marines? Uh, I did the Space Marines and then the Necrons. Mm-hmm. Um, once I did one of each of those, then they were flying through. I will have to Good. say that finding the right guns was important. Finding the right arms, all that's important because when we talk about the game, there are cards that identify all that. So you need to pay attention to what that is. And some things I didn't even notice that you pointed out to me when we were playing. But I will say kudos to you. We got them. They all looked great. They were snug. They were tight. So once you got over the anxiety, once you got through a couple, it sounds like you had to get through the rest and they looked 
They looked really good. And for a $50 box that comes with, gosh, how many models are in there? Uh, the, 15 to 20? Yeah, it was five plus, yeah, 15. Of uh, course, they were okay. five, yeah. Getting 15 models from Games Workshop for 50 bucks alone is a good deal. So if if you play 40K and are looking for some Necrons or Space Marines on a good deal, you might want to check this out too because it's a great way to get the model. So anyway, the rules. The rules. Just like any tactical warfare game, you're going to... Well, there's four steps, all right? There's initiative, figuring out who gets to go first. And, yes. and it's like, okay, you're going to roll off and figure out who gets to go first. Yeah, roll one, die, whoever rolls the highest... Has initiative. There you go. And then you move into the next phase, which was very unique that I liked, that I enjoyed in this game. Because after the models, there the expectation of me liking this game was way down. I mean, it didn't, it barely had to even lift its foot to clear the hurdle I had set. So, I got you. I got you. Yeah. So the strategy phase stra- you're talking yeah, about. Stra- so, yeah. Strategy phase. That was interesting. Are any of the other game workshops before we talk about have the strategy phase? I haven't played the latest Kill Team. I asked Joel uh, after we were done, how does this differ from Kill Team? And uh, hopefully Joel will also release a video on this game and, and do the bit by bit comparison. Joel, if you're listening and haven't, please do a video with a comparison of the Kill Team rules to this so that people uh, might want to know. I know some things I asked specifically about. I don't know about the the strategy phase, which is basically you play an objective card uh, on your turn, which will allow you to, uh, by the end of the turn or end of the game, to potentially get a victory point. Mm -hmm. Or two, depending on how complicated it is. Yes, yes. And so it's almost like little goals during the game to get victory points because, hey, guess what? Like many Euro games we play, the person with the most points uh, in this game wins. So you each have different objectives that you could be working on in the course of the game. You could pick which ones that you want to try to achieve. Right. And for me, it was like, and I always associate it to other games. I mean, we were both dealt three three objective cards and we were allowed to exchange them for more from the deck because I think there's like 12 of them. So that to me, it was like destination tickets. I had to have three. But, you know, I was from Ticket to Ride. I was sitting there. Okay, I don't want these two tickets. I get to draw two more. That's what I'm stuck with. But that's fine. Now I got to do an objective. And depending on the complexity of the objective will determine whether or not I should play it in the first, second, or third round. Because there's only three rounds to this game. And that is outstanding. Yeah, it does move fast. And the str- and the little objectives that you take may depend on the scenario. We didn't mention this is a scenario-based game. The book has scenarios, tells you what side of the board to use, where to set up the objectives and, and everything on the board. And it tells you, here's the goal of this particular scenario. So knowing that going in may determine what objective cards you want to get. What did you think of the objectives? Did you like having them? I really liked them. I really, really liked them because every time you play the game, it'll be different. There, You're going to have probably different ways to try to get victory points aside from just what you get from the scenario because the scenario also provides the ways uh, to get it. But I also really dug what was next. Next part of the strategy phase was looking at the back of your uh, stratagem card and picking one of your strategic ploys to have activated that turn. Right. Once again, something different. I had never seen that. I thought it was kind of interesting on how that played out. It may say tie in perfectly with an objective you just played, or it may be meeting a certain goal that you need based on the scenario you have. It may bolster your army. It may strengthen a individual. Who knows what it is? And one of the nicest things about this fire team box is it included those cards for all the factions, which you were telling me if I want to go out and use these other factions, I could do that. Like orcs, for for example. So it was like a team of orcs. You could go buy those orc models and then 
you know, that may be what we, I think maybe you got the Skaven for maybe Blood Bowl. I can't remember what you got it for, but it's the same sort of thing here where whatever faction you have, and if you play 40K, you may already have these models ready to go. So you can just assemble those, use the cards within this box and then play this game. I was enjoying that phase. It was like, okay, there's some, there is some good strategy before you get into the main core of all these games, killing one another. I think there's a technical term for this, killing one another. Firefight phase. Move a guy. You, you got two actions. I'm sorry. There were two actions that you could take, and you could repeat those actions. The reason why I say two action is because you have, there are four actions? No, 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 no. I'm Move saying action points. Action points. Well, that depends on the character. That's what I was getting ready to clarify. Sorry. No, but you're right. There are, there are four actions you can take, but your character that you initiate has a number of action point limit of APL. Is that it? And you're like, okay, I'm, how am I going to spend these? And based on the base set that we got, it was real simple. One action was one APL. Simple. That's all it was. If you want to shoot your gun, that was one APL. If you want to move, that's one APL. If you want to flee in fear, that was one APL. If you want to just rest, that was one APL. Am I missing one? Well, it was move, attack, disengage, and wait, which is pretty much pass. So that's flee in fear, disengage. I liked it. Run away, run away. <laughs> so Tony doesn't like to use the official terms that you're going to read in the rule book. He makes up his own of kill everybody phase or the firefight fi phase and, you know, just kind of rest or the wait. So <laughs> yeah. well, I look at it like this. I, that's true. But but you can associate with, I mean, di disengage. Well, what does that mean? It means for Monty Python, run away, run away. So you had to get away from them. Because you didn't want the big rabbit to come and kill you with the guns. Your guys coming and shoot me. You're done with that. Then it's Marty's turn. He can now take his action with an individual and depending on special abilities, what needs to happen. And you get to do this eight times. Count them eight times. Marty, I only had five models. What does that mean? So each of these rounds are called turning points. And after I activate a model, you activate a model. We've done one activation of the eight. And you cannot reactivate somebody unless you've already activated all your models. So after you activate a model, you put an activation token on them. So Tony, you would run through yours pretty quick, leaving three left over. You can reactivate somebody at that point, but you only get one action point for that model instead of two. So that's the difference. Now for uh, the Necrons, they start out with like eight in play anyway. So I got to uh, activate all my guys. Now, once they started dying off, then I would be able to reactivate them. But I thought it was really interesting is that knowing that, man, I wish I could reactivate this particular model again, but you can't. You got to get everybody else activated before you do. And you're also limited now to just one action point per model at that point. Now, that is one thing Joel told me is not in Kill Team. Kill Team does not have those eight activations. I enjoyed this. This was a mm -hmm. great way to track. I enjoyed being, because sometimes, you know, when you're playing these tactical war games, I remember this in War Machine where I'm done. I, my guys have been killed off. They're, they're finished. Well, my turn's over. I did two models. That's all I got to do. And that was kind of a boring thing. Here, there was a lot of strategy in this eight. Which ones do I want to activate and then be able to reactivate them? I need to know that. I need to pay attention to their text. Which ones are Marty, Marty going to do? And it, should I wait on this? Instead of just the simple kill everyone, there's a ton of strategic positioning, activations, and reactivations based on what someone's done. Because you have to think forward because Marty may be sitting there thinking, well, I'm going to be moving these guys all over the place. 
And he needs to think, wait a minute, he can go and reactivate that guy. And now suddenly I am in his kill zone. I need to pay attention to that. And also you got to think about what the scenario has asked you to do in the one that we played. It's about holding objectives. That is a very common type, like capture the flag thing. If you have more of your models surrounding an objective than somebody else does at the end of a turning point, you get one point per objective that you have. So not only are you trying to knock out other people's models, you're also trying to hold down um, objectives too. And how did you find the actual combat? So when we were rolling dice, did you find that, okay, reading the stats on the card for attack and defense, pretty straightforward for somebody who hadn't played one of these in a while? Once you got past the terms... Yes. I mean, you know, special defense or something. You, you had to find them. You had to look on the card. But once you did that, it was pretty straightforward. I get to roll X amount of die. This is what it takes to hit somebody. This is how many dice I get to roll in defense. And this is what I get to do to block the hit. Once you found those, you were good to go. Oh, and if I had a miss or a crit, this is what the values were. Very straightforward. Very easy to read on those cards. Now, one of the things I did like about our scenario was kind of cool is our objective points escalated in victory points. That was kind of neat. I enjoyed that. That was a fun scenario. I'm glad I picked that one. And they disappeared each round. Yeah. Remember at the beginning of the round, you were told to each of you remove one of the objective points from the board. So they not only went up in value, but there were less of them at that point. So if you had firmly surrounded an objective point, I would go, well, that's the beat. We're going to be the one I removed to make you move away to some other location. That was the fun. I, I was really pleased with that scenario. I mean, they have the basic scenario to run the, to learn the game, but you and I, we're gamers. We don't need none of this basic stuff. We are good to go. Once everything's done, rinse and repeat, baby. That's it. At the end, you know, there's a, if you kill off all my guys, of course the game ends, but that didn't happen. I was getting concerned. I was getting concerned for you too, because I thought I was going to kill off some of all of your guys, but tides change, especially with the dice. So you never do know. We made it through three rounds. And at the very end, it came down to the last rolls, which to me said, okay, that brought me back. It's like going on golf and having a great drive. I can stink the rest of the round, but that great drive brings me back here. It lasted to the final roll of the dice. And I got really, really lucky with the last final roll where again, like Tony said, it's very easy to resolve like attacks tells you how many dice you're going to roll. And this could depend on the weapon, which I like too. like the Necrons models had different things there was mon one model that had a gun that could shoot 10 inches away ah hi oh uh, ten, this is different so in kill team uh everything's based on inches and this fire team is a hex based board so you're moving number of hexes so no tape measures are needed in this game so this would say okay you can shoot 10 hexes away the particular model i had another model that can only shoot five hexes but it rolled uh, more dice or it either rolled more dice, it was easier, easier to hit. So let's say, all right, for this one, I roll four dice, and anything four and above would be a hit. Then you're def you would look at your defense of who I'm attacking. Okay, this model has a defense of three. You roll three dice. A save is anything four and above. For every successful hit you had, you'd block one of my hits. For every hit that gets through, the amount of damage is dealt based upon the weapon. That is literally in the entire entirety. And I want to explain that because... The previous kill team rules were way more involved. There were tables that had to be looked up, and, and there was just a lot more to maintain and keep up with, even for a skirmish game. This has translated over to the brand new kill team, which I really like because it's a lot easier to resolve combat, so it's a lot more fluid. 
And it was sweet on time for me. 30 to 45 minutes? I mean, that was it, right? You know your models, you learn it. We spent more time trying to pick out our objectives and strategy based on where we were than probably what we were during the... Um, yeah, it took longer to resolve the, the firefight, but it wasn't so much of a um, thinking thing as I need to do this, this, and this. But even But it was quick hitting, move, let's go, let's go to the next round. It was very, very enjoyable. So once again, the bar was very low for me. And it cleared it leaps and bounds. I was very pleased with this. I enjoyed this. The models upset me, plain and simple. But the gameplay redeemed it for me. So I, I, I want to do this again. I mean, it's even gotten me to the point where I would love to just pick up another model set and, and do use that one if I could. Mm. I would like, yeah. I'd like to try something that I've always enjoyed the, um, well, Skavens aren't part of this, but the orcs, I would love to put the orcs on the table. I would love to try it. And there's even this thing called campaign mode. I didn't read that page in the rule book, but I'm sure there's something to do with that. Cause there was these big words on a page that said campaign. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. We just played like a one-off scenario, but you can play a campaign to where you get bonus upgrades. So at the end, uh, there was a whole deck of cards that gave you like weapon upgrades that you would keep to future games and be able to use those in later games. So even with this one $50 box, two full teams with a bunch of different objectives and a campaign that can be played over the course of several games, plus all the cards you need for making other factions if you just buy the models. A lot of content in this one box. And before we get out of here, I do want to say that also being released at Barnes & Noble at the same time is a game called Space Marine Adventures Doomsday Countdown. If you're not into battling one-on-one -on -one with somebody, or maybe it's like, I don't have anybody to play with, this is a co-op game. So this is a game that plays 30 to 45 minutes, cooperative game where you have three Space Marines face off against a hive of swarming chaos cultists to deactivate a cataclysmic weapon and try to escape. So that's kind of the blurb of that one. We have that one too. We have not had a chance to play it, but I'm going to get those models together. I may play it myself and then come back and talk about it. But I, I wanted to get this one on the table because I really enjoyed our time years ago when we would play War Machine and go to tournaments and stuff like that. I kind of miss that sort of thing of getting together with you, pushing some models around and board and chucking dice. So I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed this. Oh one. yeah, definitely enjoyed it. I, the one you just said, I can't wait for you to do that one. Hand it off to me because I'm very interested in, in playing that one as well. I mean, shoot, that's something that I would even pick up myself because like you said, if it's cooperative or single, it'd be interesting for me to try it with Donna. Yeah, and it plays 30 minutes. Oh. So it's right in your wheelhouse. Oh, yeah. Squirrel attention span right there. I love it. So this is Warhammer 40K Fireteam. And if you're interested, Doomsday Countdown coming to Barnes & Noble. Each of them are just 50 bucks. Tony is my, was my guinea pig for the typical person who walks into the store and might be interested in picking it up. You heard his struggles with the models, but once he got going and got the game on the table, he really enjoyed it. We had Ignacio on a couple episodes ago. You know, we got the big Kickstarter 11 coming out. Actually, it's from GameFound. I can't say you're Kickstarter's become like Kleenex, right? When you think when you say crowdfunding, you say Kickstarter's like Kleenex. That, that's a product. They're doing crowdsourcing via GameFound. So make sure you go follow them on the GameFound if you want to find out some more about uh, this game. This game is a soccer or football themed game that he uh, told us about. 
we're starting to hear some people that have got some early copies of it to play it. Our good friend Chevy Dodd has a copy. I saw him talk about it on his social media account the other day. They're getting it ready to go for Gen Con if you want to go check it out there. Uh, we've also got several games coming out. We got Dreadful Circus that, uh, what's funny, Tony, is we had Ignacio on the show, and this is the one game he didn't talk about. He talked about all of his other games except this one. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute. This came in my email. There's dre- I need to talk about this. Why, why didn't Ignasi? That's why I brought him on. <laughs> I'm trying to save myself time here and look at him. He's already doing that I, to me. I actually reached out to him. I said, you do realize you didn't talk about this other game? He went, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, he's been he's too busy being on vacation in Italy. I know that happens. That's right. So here, that's right. So I don't know who's running Portal right now, but maybe next time we'll have them on the show. <laughs> so anyway, keep an eye out for Eleven Dreadful Circus. Million Dollar Script is out. Their new party game, which we've talked about. A brand new expansion for Nurashima Hex is the Day of Moloch. By the time this episode releases, it will have already happened. Beasts is coming out. And something Marty and I are both very excited about, the new Nurashima Hex app. Soon? I hope. I have a problem. I can't play Nurashima Hex on the app. I need that to be resolved. I need it to be on my Switch. I need it to be on my iPad. <laughs> I need it to be everywhere. Let's make this happen. Either way, head over to portalgames.pl slash en to check out all the offerings that they have and learn about games that Ignasi even forgot to mention on our show. Tony, we don't do a lot of Kickstarter news, but I'm going to just mention two real quick. One, Super Truffle Pigs is now currently on Kickstarter. And I got a prototype of this game. And I must admit that some game called Super Truffle Pigs, I wouldn't think would be something I'd be interested in. But after playing the game, it's like, okay, this is this is really cool. On your turn, <laughs> you're moving pigs around tiles on a board. You have a couple actions per turn to be able to move pigs and be able to dig for truffles. And the higher victory point truffles take more actions to get them out of the ground. So a one point truffle only takes one action. Two point truffle takes two actions and a three point Truffle takes three actions. And as you dig, you tilt your little pig towards the ground to show how many actions you've spent so far. Story standing up on his hind legs with his snout, <laughs> letting you know that the next action you take is going to be able to get the, the truffle. But here's the thing, Tony. There are these wolves out there that are trying to hunt down the pigs. So after you take your couple of actions of trying to get to the truffles and get the victory points, you're going to play cards face down on the board that will move the wolf on the board. Everybody's going to do that on the end of their turn. And once the all the movement cards for the wolves is out, you turn all the movement cards face up to reveal be revealed for the first time. And the mo- wolf is moved around the board. And guess what, Tony? If he comes in the space where there's a little piggy, little piggy got to go. And you got to start all over again. So it's kind of this, this this movement thing where you're trying to keep the pig, the wolf away from you, but you're not exactly sure how other people are moving the wolf on their turn. Kind of like a zombie zombie wolf princess type yes, game. Yes, exactly. But what's also cool is you can upgrade the number of actions you get. You start with a couple actions, but over the course of the game, you could upgrade and get three actions per turn, four actions per turn. So again... Very simple concept. I was really surprised about how deep this game is. A Super Truffle Pigs is almost over on Kickstarter right now. It has funded. Uh, so go uh, go check this out for a little light family game that there's a lot more to it than what meets the eye. And it's by Bicycle Games. And you know, you know the 
famous bicycle playing card company. Mm-hmm. They're making games now. Well, they made aside them aside from Fifty Two Guardians. Well, games. Well, we we covered a couple of their previous bicycle like tattoo. Oh, what was the tattoo one? Anyway, bicycle games. That's. They're so cute. The little pigs are so, so cute. But you know what's not going to be cute? I'm so excited about this. This is not on Kickstarter yet, but it was announced. Total War Rome is coming out on Kickstarter. Tony, did you ever play any of the Total War games on the PC? Absolutely not, Marty. All right. These are epic battle simulations for the PC. It's not one guy fighting against another guy. It's whole platoons and Groups of soldiers and siege engines and stuff moving out into the battlefield for major combat. That's what this game is going to be. It's it's Total War Rome, the board game, and it's the fight for strategic and economic dominance in ancient Europe. It's going to be released next year. It uh, plays two to, don't know the number of players yet. Now, this is one of our long games. This plays two to three hours, so this is a long, epic scale game, but it's going to involve alliances. Uh, it's going to be a, a campaign style game. Uh, it's going to be car driven. There's going to be some dice resolution. You got you have to work on your uh, income. There's tech trees. I cannot wait to see how this plays because the Total War series of PC games are so popular. And if they can mimic the style of those games, this game is going to be so much fun to play. I'm going to, have to take your word on it. I don't know if you had me at three to four hours, but we'll see. <laughs> probably not but uh, i just always enjoy these style of games because of the historical aspect of it but actually the more pot one of the more popular versions of total war is total war warhammer fantasy and the third version of that is coming out later this year and my sons are super excited about that game they love total war warhammer it's one of their favorite uh, strategy games of all time so they're super pumped about it this one is historical based, but one of the more popular ones is actually the Warhammer Fantasy version of this game. See, you play all these hard games and all these big games. I get stuck doing puzzles. <laughs> like what? <clears throat> well, you know, we talked about Mondo. Mm-hmm. And they uh, sent us some puzzles. So finally convinced Donna to put a um, the Mondo Planet of the Apes puzzle on the table. And when we first started this, she goes, oh, this puzzle is going to be hard. And I'm like, okay, why is that? And she goes, well, do you see how it's all basically for you, me being the person, how it's all going to be kind of one colorish? And I said, well, there's going, there's this orange, there's this brown, and then there's this dark blue. And I said, yeah. She goes, you're not going to be able to do this. And she was right. She gave me the letters, the planet of the apes. And she said, you're going to work on this and I'm going to do the other 75% of the puzzle. Oh, so yeah. And I was like, okay, that's fine. But I think I can do more than that. I think I can, I can manage more than that. She had completed probably 40% of the puzzle and I had yet to complete the planet of the apes. And she was having fun with me. And I was like, fine, I will get my part done. I finally finished my The Planet of the Apes lettering that's in the middle of the puzzle. Love the artwork. It's very unique. I love the whole theme of it. I'm not too happy on the cutting of the puzzle. There were a lot of um, broken pieces. When I say broken, the cor- you know, the little uh, jigsaw piece was bent or the backs of them had been separated. So I think we lost a little bit on the quality control where I would be having this framed. But then I'm like, okay, what do I work on next? And she goes, well, you can work in this area. 
And so I would work maybe 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes a night with her on the puzzle. And then I said, I'm done. I'm going to put in one piece and I am going to go play my PlayStation Ascension Creed Valhalla. You got this. So I'll go do for 30 minutes. I'm going to go play my video game. You're going to work on the puzzle. Man, this thing was hard. Now, I don't know. Did you ever get your puzzle from Mondo put together yet? No, I gave it to Adam. Because it's, it's, it's Castlevania, so that that's kind of his thing. Well, hopefully someday he'll put it together, but this definitely a difficult puzzle. So if you're interested in what are the various puzzles, it's winter is coming, and you know it's time to go back indoors, and Donna and I enjoy doing our puzzles. So hopefully I'm going to be able to find something not as challenging, maybe one with a lot more color to it. So I, I enjoyed it. I, I am enjoying it. I am able to contribute a little bit to it. I just wish the puzzle cuts had been better so that I could frame this puzzle, put it up in the game room somewhere. With that in mind, I need to go help with a puzzle. So keep rolling dice and taking names. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Dyson Names, Instagram, Dyson Names. Hey, we're only just a few away from 300 in our Discord channel. Come join us. We're having a fantastic time. Hey, Tony, did you know it takes more muscles to frown than smile? Well, that's why I'm so grumpy, Marty, because I'm just doing a workout. <laughs>